little different today. Um, normally, we jump right into to the text um, that we'll that we study. Uh, if you're new with us, we are a church who constantly looks to God's word, and so all we do here is take a text of scripture, read it, say what it means. <laughs> That's it. It's simple, but but we know that there is something in that that the Lord uses to transform us and so that's why we do it we believe he has more power more ability to change lives than we do so we trust him in that Um, the last time we were in in the gospel of Matthew was a few weeks ago Uh, last week we had pastor Tim Kane from Kaleo Church here with us and if you have not yet listened to his sermon Please do. It's up on our um, dcbc.org. Click on the sermons link and you'll be able to find it there. For that, uh, Pastor Dustin Saunders was introing us into uh, Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. And um, for that, we're in Matthew. And the last we saw in Matthew, Matthew's gospel, Jesus had given us this parable about how the father's love for his little ones It's like the way a good shepherd cares for his sheep. I don't know if you remember that. If you weren't here, you didn't know it. But but there there you are in in Matthew chapter 18. And Jesus is telling us about the father's love for his little ones. And that context is extremely important to our text this morning. If we miss that context of that passage, then this morning's teaching kind of becomes, not kind of, it becomes cold, it becomes legalistic, and we don't want that to happen. So, so even though I'm going to be teaching verses 15 through 20 this morning in Matthew chapter 18, I want to go back and start with verse 10. So Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, and we'll read all the way to verse 20. Our Lord Jesus Christ says this, He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And if you'll remember, little ones means other Christians. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? And if he finds it, Truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other 99 that never went astray. So, it's not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray as we begin our time. Father in heaven, you've 
just told us if we ask you anything together, agreeing together on this thing, that you'll answer our prayer. And so, Lord, this morning we ask you to, to show us the absolute importance of this instruction from Jesus Christ. Would you sink this command of our Savior deep into our hearts? Would you sink this deep into who we are as a church, so much so that it is is rooted and it grows, and this becomes a part of who we are as Christians, who we are as Del Cerro Baptist Church? Lord, I know that when we live in obedience to you, you're glorified among us. And so, Lord, help us to understand what obedience to you in this looks like. Show us your grace here, your mercy here, the love that you have for us here. Give us understanding, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you, you can probably see just from reading those two texts together how closely these ideas fit together. Here it is. If you are in Christ, you are the means that the Father is using to rescue his straying sheep. And what we're going to see in our passage is that when you, as a Christian, see a brother or a sister caught in sin, you are the rod, you're you're the staff that the good shepherd uses to protect them from the danger that they're in. You are the means that the good shepherd uses to keep away the shadow of death. And that's the big idea here that we're going to see. When when one Christian won't do, God will send two or three more. When that won't do, do, God will send an entire assembly of Christians, the church, to rescue his little straying sheep and keep them from sin. That's who our God is. That's the love that he has for his sheep. And so I hope that what you see as we walk through this text together, that this plan that Jesus has for the church is not cold legalism. This is the warm and loving mercy of the Father. And so with that framework in mind, let's look at verse 15. We're just going to go through this verse by verse by verse. Reading verse 15 again, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, now, as we get into this, there are a few qualifications that we need to make. One is this. This entire passage, verses 15 through 20, deals exclusively with those who consider themselves Christians. Whenever you see that word brother in the New Testament, it's almost always talking about another Christian. All right, so how we deal with the sins of our neighbors out in the world has already been covered by Jesus way back in the Sermon on the Mount. What do we do when someone in the world offends us? When they strike us, we turn the other cheek. The world is not expected to repent. The world doesn't have the Holy Spirit. The world is especially not expected to be accountable to the church of Christ. But Christians, Christians are to be living a life of repentance. And we are most definitely accountable to one another in the church. So keep that in mind 
Keep in mind that this passage deals exclusively, exclusively with those claiming to be Christians. Now, the second type of qualification that, that I want to make is this, and it concerns the type of sin that Jesus is talking about here. In verse 15, I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible, and it says, if your brother sins against you. Now, many of you have had your NIV Bibles for the last 50 years, or your New American Standard Bibles for a similar time link, and you're looking at that verse, and you're saying, well, my Bible doesn't say sins against you. It just says, if your brother sins. And what's going on here is that some of the really, really old Greek manuscripts say against you, and some of the really, really old Greek manuscripts, this text was written in Greek, they don't include that clause. And so in translating Matthew, scholars have to make a choice. Is against you in the original text, or is it not? And they don't know, so they have to make a judgment call. And they're split, honestly, they're split about 50-50 on this one. But either way, we're dealing with some sin. I think we can all agree on this. We're dealing here with some sin that you as a Christian are witnessing in the life of another Christian. It's some sin that the Bible clearly says is sin, and it's a sin that is serious enough that if it isn't dealt with, it can lead to that person's ruin, and it can lead to that person's excommunication from the church. Now, not all sins are this way, are they? I want to be careful the way that, the way that I put this. It, for instance, if you say to me, Dustin, I don't like your beard, I'm probably going to ignore you, okay? Beards are biblical, and, and my wife wants me to have a beard, and so I'm not going to confront you for your poor taste. I'll just pray for you. But, but if you are, as Jesus talked about in verse 6, if you're leading others into sin, Jesus talks about this in, in Matthew 18, verse 6, or if you're despising other Christians, you're looking down on other Christians, as Jesus talked about back in verse 10, well, then we, we, we have a grievous issue to deal with, don't we? Elsewhere in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that sins... That are, that are committed in public, that bring shame to the name of Christ, they would fall into this category of sins that must be confronted immediately. There's another time that we read about in the book of Acts when, when a brother is undermining the gospel message by his actions, by the, by the way that he lives his life and the way he treats people. And in those cases, again, confrontation is the right response. And, and when it comes down to it, though, if, if you're ever stuck and you're trying to figure out, is this, if what, it, what have I just witnessed, is something that I need to confront or is this something that I need to, to just cover over or, or ignore? If you're stuck, err on the side of confrontation. The process, and what we're going to see, the process that Jesus has laid out for us is so grace-filled that it is better to have what turns out to be a clarifying conversation with someone than to let that other person fight sin alone. 
confront, err on the side of confrontation. Now, that being said, you're probably like me. I do not like to do this. I, I do not like to be the one that has to go to someone to correct them. My, my personal default, and this is wrong, but I'm just admitting my faults here. My default with most issues is just wait and see if this blows over. Maybe, I think, maybe this person on their own will come to their senses, they'll confess their sin, and we can all move on. Confronting people is intimidating, isn't it? And yet, what does Jesus say? Look again at verse 15. When your brother sins, you go to him. Why? Well, there's, there's three reasons I want to show you here that are biblical. Three biblical reasons I'm going to show you why Jesus says this is the process we go about. The first one is this. God is always the one who initiates. So for those of you who are in Christ, means you're a Christian, you are, you are the means through which God, the good shepherd, goes after his straying sheep. That, that parable that Jesus told us, the shepherd and the sheep, the 99 and the one, it does not say this. It doesn't say that the shepherd, not wanting to offend the straying sheep, stays with the 99 and patiently waits for the straying sheep to repent, hoping that he will come to his senses on his own. No, Jesus says the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes to the one, doesn't it? Why? Because straying sheep do not come to their senses on their own. And that sheep is in critical danger. And the shepherd loves the sheep. And so you and I, whose very identity is in the good shepherd, acting as his representatives, we are to go to the one who's in sin. We are to go to the one who has sinned because it's always, 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 always God who initiates. That's how salvation works. And in the same way that God uses us to proclaim the good news and people hear it and they come to saving faith, he uses us to call for restoration for those who are straying. God initiates. That's reason one. The second reason why we are the ones to go to the sinning brother is this. Confronting sin protects us from sin. Look at what the Spirit says to us in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.17. Lord says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your brother, with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Very, very similar situation that Moses, inspired by the Spirit, is speaking to here. A brother has sinned against you, and God says, don't hate him, but instead do what? Reason frankly with him, lest you incur sin because of him. Another translation says, lest you share in his guilt. So, so when we try to ignore another Christian's offense, especially if it's a serious sin, what 
the Old Testament law taught was we open ourselves up to bitterness. And that's not just law, that's human nature, isn't it? We begin to think of, as our, of ourselves as better than that person, as more righteous than that person. And what do we do? We gossip about them. Rather than confronting them, talking to them privately, one-on-one about that situation, about that sin, our nature, because of our, ten- our sinful tendency towards self-righteousness, we just mutter about it with other people. And, and when we do that, we are despising our brother. No good comes from it. In fact, we make matters worse by going about things that way. But when we humble ourselves, when we confront sin, when we go about that difficult task of confronting a brother or sister in Christ, what are we doing? We're pointing one another to the cross of Christ. We're reminding one another of who we are together in Christ, forgiven children of the Father. And that's why Jesus says in verse 15, if he listens to you, because you've gone about it this way, if he listens to you, You've gained your brother. Not only have you kept him from straying and you've helped him return to the fold, but in your own heart, because of Christ's work on the cross in defeating sin, you have been reminded of the fellowship that you have with this person. And so the reconciliation that takes place is a restoration of Christian brotherhood, of Christian fellowship. Was there a third reason why we are to go to the straying sheep? And you might have already guessed this one. It's simply this. Jesus commands it. And if that seems trite, it shouldn't seem that way. Obeying Christ's commands is a part of what it means to live under his rule as our king. And this is one of his commands. So look, look at verse 15 again. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And that verb, go, that's imperative. The verb tell is imperative. Jesus, the therapist, doesn't say it's a good practice in some circumstances to do the following. No, Jesus, the king, says, you go, you tell him his fault. And that means for us, Christian brothers and sisters, this is not optional. It's a command, and it comes from our king. And what that means for us is we don't have a choice. This instruction that Jesus has given us isn't just a good idea. It's not just a healthy way to go about reconciliation if We think it's a good idea. This is the primary means that God uses to rescue his straying sheep. It's the only instruction we have in this matter. When we become Christians, when we are crucified with Jesus Christ and it's no longer us who live, but Christ is living in us, that means we have set aside our ways for his ways. We have presented ourselves, as Romans 12 says, as living sacrifices to be used by God for his glory, for his purposes. And one of the most explicit purposes, one of the clearest things that we know that God wants 
is protecting his little ones from sin. So why should we go to our brother when they're in sin? Because God initiates it. And God protects in this way. And God commands that restoration happen in this way. That's the why. But let's examine more closely this process that Jesus has given us. In verse 15, we as God representatives, his representatives, we go to the straying sheep. But not all straying sheep return immediately, do they? That's the point of this whole paragraph here. The deceitfulness of sin so easily hardens hearts that sometimes greater measures are needed to be employed in order to rescue that sheep. So in verse 16, Jesus takes us further. He commands us, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Notice here, this is still a very private matter, isn't it? We talked about the danger of of gossip a moment ago, but he's not gotten to that point. This is one brother or sister who's gone to a brother or sister to confront them. Things did not go as planned, and so one or two others goes to them. No one else knows about this yet. Maybe, maybe, maybe you've gone to a couple that's close to this person, or maybe to other friends in the church who are close to this person. Maybe you've gone to a pastor in order to help confront this person. Jesus doesn't specify who to bring along. What's important is that the number of people who know about the situation is small. And there's two reasons. One is this is not about shaming the individual. This is about seeking their restoration. So we're seeking to restore someone to the flock. We're seeking to protect them from further harm. That is our goal. That is the Father's heart in this process. And so bringing an additional two people along heightens the seriousness of the situation for the straying sheep. But, but, but there's also a legal element to it. It also introduces witnesses to the situation. Look again at verse 16. If he does not listen, take two or one or two others along with you. Why, Jesus? So that, he says, so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So God commanded Israel, he always commanded Israel, to operate in this manner. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, a single witness, that first brother, shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence, same word that Jesus uses, only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall this charge be established. Okay, so because this situation has the potential to escalate to a church-wide confrontation, it's important that this not be a, a he said, she said, deliberation. Jesus is simply being biblical here. If it becomes necessary, two or three witnesses are bringing this charge before the entire church. And there in verse 17, we get that next step. 
tell it to the church, he says. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, that two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, I'm going to repeat this a hundred times. The goal here, the heart of God behind this process is restoration. Okay? It's, the goal is not excommunication. The goal is not to shame this person. And, and at this stage in the process, the church together is not just a court, but they are the, the shepherd's rod and staff reaching further and deeper into the thickness to rescue the straying sheep. They all know this person. They all care for this person and love them. They're they're seeking together to see this person repent and return to Christ. And because that's the goal here, the the ways that the church goes about this process are going to vary. All right, so obedience to Christ, important, top thing, remember that. But the way that we obey Christ in this is going to vary according to the nature of the sin being dealt with. Was it a public sin or was it a private sin? It's going to vary according to how many people know about this already. Is this just something that the church knows about? Is this something that has made the newspaper? How serious is this sin? How, how many people have been impacted? Is this an ongoing thing or was it a, a one-time thing? Are the police involved? Does this individual have other issues that we need to consider? Health concerns, mental health concerns. Are there children involved? Are, are there financial hardships the church needs to address? The list goes on and on and on. Every situation is different. And the church needs to respond accordingly with prayer and wisdom and with obedience to Christ. Let me, I just want to walk you through an example of, of what this can look like. All right, this is a process that I was a part of. There was a couple who had been really involved in a, in a fairly healthy church. The husband was an elder in the church. The, the wife often volunteered in the children's ministry in the church. And somewhere along the way, and for reasons I still don't know, and we never did know, the wife, we'll just call her L. she began to resent the people of the church. And the church. She was, she was distancing, dense, distancing herself from Sunday morning gatherings and other church gatherings. The husband had, had kind of noticed this. He heard the way that she was talking about the church. He, he noticed the, the bitterness in her. And so he, he's a very gentle man. He gently confronted his wife about this this issue, and she only dug herself in further. Eventually, she became angry toward her husband because he was involved in the church, and so she asked him to step down from the elder board. The husband told his closest friend in the church, seeking counsel, and then that friend and that, that man's wife and the husband all came to L to talk to her, to hear her out. And this only caused her to become more entrenched, more bitter, more resentful. And because of this, the husband decided it's best now to step down from ministry so that he can care for his wife. And he shared his reasons for stepping down 
with the rest of the elders. And at this point, El had not been gathering with the body of Christ for a little over nine months. So it's been a while. And it wasn't, it, was, it wasn't just that she didn't, like, didn't want to be a part of that church. She didn't want to be a part of any church. She didn't want to have anything to do with any Christians. So the pastors prayed with the husband. They encouraged the husband and the other close family to continue to counsel El towards restoration. Well, months passed, and we get to about the one-year mark. There's been no, no progress. Elle would not return phone calls. Their marriage was becoming shaky at this point, and so the pastors sent a letter to her. The letter essentially said this, We miss you. We love you. We're urging you to heed the counsel that's being given to you by your husband and your friends. Return to worship with our church or prayerfully consider visiting another church. So this is not, this is not a, you're kicked out, nothing like that, but, but just a prompt to remind her of the importance of the body of Christ. And so either gather with that church or another church that's preaching the gospel. And what happened then was the letter infuriated her. And she withdrew further into sinful bitterness. And at this point, she wouldn't even respond to her closest friends. At about the 15-month mark, at a members-only church meeting, Elle's adult daughter presented the situation to the membership. So the, the daughter's plea to the church was, pray for her and reach out to her. A number of members had already noticed, you know, Elle's not been around for a while. They had already called her. They had already reached out to her. But now the entire church body was praying for her, and the entire church body is reaching out to her. Months pass, still nothing. No response, no change. Now, in this situation, I want you to think about what we've read so far. In this situation, when do we get to that let her be to you as a Gentile and tax collector part? When do you dismiss her, remove her from church membership? We've gone from one person to three people to several more, including the, the elders of the church, the pastors of the church, and now the whole church, the membership of the church. How much time do you give someone? She is not publicly bringing shame to the name of Christ. She's not writing articles in the newspaper against Christianity. She's not blasting Christians or the pastors on Facebook. There's some family difficulties, yes, but there's, there's no threat of divorce. There's no abuse happening. There's no threat of physical harm happening to anyone. Well, the elders decided that the church had time. They had time to patiently and lovingly seek El's restoration. But they needed her to know, because that's a part of this process, they needed her to know that the call for repentance, the call for restoration, was going to be ongoing and continuing. Eventually, they sent her another letter explaining to her the grave danger of her own bitterness and cautioned her regarding the possibility of excommunication if it continued. And they did that not as a threat, but to wake her up, to, to, uh, to cause alarm in her heart to the gravity of, of her situation and the sin. Her, her, 
Sin was ongoing. There was no desire to repent. She was in disobedience to Christ's clear command to love other Christians and gather with other Christians to worship him. And as far as the church could tell, there was no evidence in her life that she was a Christian at all. And this was a serious concern. Still, no response. The elders and the church continued to pray for her. At about the 18-month mark, in the mysterious providence of God, Elle was diagnosed with an extremely aggressive cancer, and her physical health began to deteriorate very rapidly. Church members continued to reach out to her and pray for her, and by the mercy of God, the Spirit began to reveal to her that she needed to be restored to the body of Christ. God showed her that the people reaching out to her genuinely loved her and that her reasons for bitterness were unfounded. She eventually returned to the gathered church. About a month later, Elle asked the pastors if she could address the membership of the church. Of course, they allowed her to, and she confessed publicly to the church that she had been sinfully resentful. She thanked the church for their patience with her, and for reaching out to her. She reconciled with the people she had been particularly hurtful toward, and she sought forgiveness, which the church, of course, gave her in abundance. She gathered with the church as often as she was able, but she died a few months later. 55-year-old wife, mother, grandmother, and a daughter of her heavenly father. The Lord had reached his straying sheep. He rescued her. He reestablished her place among his little ones. And rather than her funeral being an uncertain and confusing time where people didn't even know whether she was a Christian, her funeral was a time to, yes, mourn her passing, but with confidence in Christ and with confidence in Christ's work on her behalf. So let me ask you, what would have happened? What would have happened if that church had disobeyed Christ's commands and allowed El to wallow in her sin? What if not wanting to offend her, the pastors had decided that bitterness and resentment are just minor sins? And not really that big of a deal. And they could just let it go. Because of their willingness to obey Christ, the entire membership of the church experienced the grace of God. The entire church together was reminded of the call to fear the Lord. They were all together reminded of the gravity of sin and the love of the Lord and the wonder of his mercy. Friends, we don't know how to love better than Jesus. When we decide we don't want to hurt someone's feelings and we're going to ignore that their house is on fire, we're not loving them. We're selfishly and cowardly despising them. We're willfully turning them over to their own destruction. 
We are the means that God uses to rescue his straying sheep. We are the body of Christ, commissioned by Christ to rescue those who are in danger. This this process that God has given us is perhaps one of the most visible ways that Messiah saves his people from sin. Which doesn't always turn out the way it did with El, does it? We all know that. Look at that last sentence in verse 17. We're only halfway through the text here. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If someone will not respond to the voice of the good shepherd in one person or three people or even the entire church, if someone does not repent of sin but instead chooses to continue in sin, Jesus says, this person is not one of his person does not belong to the kingdom. When God, through the means of his church, calls his sheep to repentance, when he beckons them back into the fold, true sheep eventually, key word, eventually respond in faith and repentance. But those who are not his sheep, they do not respond at all because they cannot respond because they are not his sheep. They are goats following the idols of the world. And so Jesus says of them, treat them as they are choosing to be treated, as pagans, outsiders, those who have no interest in the things of God. And what this gives us a picture of, and I want to show you this picture if you're not seeing it already. What this tells us is that in the church, there are insiders. Those who belong to Christ, and so they're a part of the the local church body, and they're committed to the fellowship of believers. And then there are those who are outsiders, those who are outside of the church. They are not a part of the body of Christ. They do not live in obedience to Christ. They have not submitted to the kingship of Christ. So, not living under his kingship, they are not a part of his kingdom. The question then for us, and this is the hard part, is this. Who determines who's an insider and who's an outsider? In our American culture, we would say, well, it's the individual, of course. It's the individual that makes that determination. No one has the right to tell us whether or not we belong to Jesus Christ, that's between us and Jesus, one-to-one. We choose the church we want to go to and the preacher that we'll listen to. We choose the time of day that we will attend worship and the day that we'll attend worship and the style of music that we want to listen to. In our minds, every single aspect of our faith is our choice and it's under our dominion, under our authority. But that is so far from the biblical truth. It couldn't be farther. Look at verse 18. When it comes to who is a part of and who doesn't belong to Christ, it is not the individual who makes that determination. Jesus says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you, plural, 
church. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The you, again, you have to see this. This is a plural you. It's in the context of the church. The plurality of kingdom citizens gathered together, making a determination about this individual. If the person being sought after repents, then the church has the authority given to them by Christ to, this is a word we don't often use, to loose them. It means to set them free from their guilt. Remember, that was the purpose of this whole process to begin with, wasn't it? To see that this person is released from the bondage to sin. They've called this person to turn from sin and return to Christ. So when they repent, what does the church do? The church joyfully reassures this person of their salvation in Christ, their freedom from bondage to sin, and their part in Christ's body, their part in the fellowship. They're loosed from sin, and they've returned to Christ. But if they don't repent, if they refuse to listen even to the church, well, then they remain bound in their sin. And so the church makes this determination. As far as we can tell, and this is not something the church leaps into, okay? This is a long, long process. But this is what the church says. As far as we can tell, this person does not belong to the kingdom of heaven. This person is not living in obedience to heaven's king. And so we can no longer confidently say that they are members of the body of Christ. And then the church begins to treat them as outsiders. The church binds the unrepentant sinner to the guilt of their sin that they are willfully caught up in. And Jesus is saying here that the church has the authority to make that determination. Whether or not the person belongs to the visible church here on earth. So that's the church's responsibility. It's the church's authority. An individual cannot make that determination. This doesn't happen in verse 15. Two or three people cannot make this call. It doesn't happen in verse 16. The authority to do this does not rest with a pope. It does not rest with a bishop. It does not rest with a presbytery or a committee or even the deacons or even the pastors. This binding and loosing authority, this responsibility is given to the assembly, the congregation, the church. And the church has this unique responsibility because the church has been given the task in the world to represent Christ and the gospel to the world around them. It's through the church. Ephesians 3.10, quote this one all the time. The manifold wisdom of God is being made known through the church. To all of creation. And that happens through the church's proclamation of the gospel message. And that happens through the church's real life evidence of the gospel being borne out in church members. In a true church, what's happening? Repentance is happening all the time. 
Forgiveness is happening all the time. A striving for holiness is happening. And people are growing in Christ's likeness. That's what a church does. And that is reinforced by this practice of church discipline that Jesus Christ has given us. But if the church isn't practicing church discipline, if they are disobeying Christ's command, and if those claiming to represent Christ are living lives of rebellion against King Jesus, there's no call for repentance from the body. And there's no rescue missions going after the straying sheep. If the church takes on this live and let live attitude instead and says, who are we to judge? Well, what happens to the church's witness, friends? What happens to that manifold wisdom of God that is supposed to be made known to creation through the church? Where, where there's no church discipline, the love of God in rescuing, saving and rescuing those straying sheep and saving them, it's not seen. The righteousness of Christ isn't being seen in the church because sin is allowed to spread like gangrene, as Paul says. The gospel message of forgiveness is watered down to the point of, of being an empty idea rather than a, a cherished reality. You see now that our witness to the watching world and the practice of church discipline are inseparable. They're inseparable responsibilities. You can't do one without the other. And if that seems daunting, if it seems too burdensome and awkward, friends, there's good news. We are not alone. And that's what verses 19 and 20 tell us. Our Savior has promised to be with us in this. And our Father in heaven has promised to help us in every step along the way. Look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, again I say to you, same context here. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So what do you think Jesus is talking about when he says, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask? Well, that's the two from verse 15. The one straying and the one who has gone after her. When we obediently undergo this process of confronting sin, Jesus is telling us here, our Father in heaven will answer our prayers every step along the way. And this is one of the most explicit and clear promises of answered prayer in the entire New Testament. It's, it's not an if. It's when. When we seek the Father, He will, he will answer our prayer. When the straying sheep and the one sent to rescue them pray together. When they pray for help, when they pray for forgiveness, when they pray for restoration, when they ask the Father to heal this situation, regardless of how difficult it is, it will be done for them by our Heavenly Father. 
It is not the Father's will. Verse 14, it's not the Father's will that even one of his little ones should perish. So of course he's going to answer prayers when we're seeking out one of those little ones. And, Jesus says, and who are, the, who are the two or three gathered in Christ's name? In verse 20. Well, this is that little group that Jesus was talking about in verse 15. And that bigger group in verse 16. And this is the church in verse 17. Jesus is promising us, promising us here. He is with us throughout this process. You see that? In the text, he's with us. Rescuing sinners is what Jesus was sent to earth to do. And so we can be assured wherever there is redemption happening in the church of Christ, wherever there is restoration happening, wherever there is repentance and forgiveness, wherever the love of the Father is being extended from heaven to earth, Jesus is there. It's what he does. It's who he is. This is our king. The one who never leaves us. So we can obey him, friends. Del Cero, we can obey him knowing he is glorified among us. When we are living according to his good commands. His church is more true to the world when we're living in obedience to his commands. And Christ is more clearly with us. Let's pray.